Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning grateful for the opportunity to be able to consider your word. We pray that by your spirit you might illuminate these words to us. We pray that you might convince us of of who you are. We pray that you would convict us of sin, that you would also encourage us by your spirit to be able to believe these words as profitable for us, to be able to hear them and apply them to our lives so that the way we look at life, the way that we live, the way that we believe might be different and better for it, for our good and for your glory. We need your help for this, and so we do ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'll open this morning just with a few questions that I wonder if some of you have asked. I know that I myself have in, in the course of life and maybe even especially this past year of my life. What is your view of God's power? Uh, what's your view of his control of things in life, in the world? Uh, have you ever wondered, perhaps in your life as you go throughout life, uh, what his plan is, is if he's strong enough to be able to handle all that happens in life, especially when life hits, when life hits hard in your life, is God strong enough to really bear the weight of the challenges of life and when your knees buckle at the weight of it? Have you ever asked the question or wondered if the Christian faith, if you are a Christian, is durable? Right? Is it resilient enough for life? Uh, you might even have asked the question, uh, does God really have a plan on this earth? You open your eyes, you look out into the world, all you see is devastation. You, you see shootings, uh, you see brokenness and illness and disease and all kinds of horror. Uh, really, could you ask God, you have a plan for all of this? You are really in control of all things? Is that, is that really true, God? Or you think of your own circumstances in life that you find yourself in perhaps even this morning. Does God really seem to be in control of things in your life, in the world, and of all things that happen? Or perhaps you've asked even more personally to, your, to yourself as you think about the gospel and, and what it means to you. Perhaps you have hoped and believed and prayed that this gospel would penetrate into the heart of our city or in, in your community or maybe even a beloved friend or family member who you so badly want to believe the gospel but it's not happened yet. Is God really in control of all things and over hearts? And uh, is he sovereign over life? Uh, perhaps you've wondered that, the resilience of God, the durability of this thing. I was reading from a pastor this past week as he was reflect, reflecting on the Christian life. And he related the Christian life to the picture you might imagine of a father holding his child's hand as he walks down the road. The pastor says that God has you by the hand. He holds you by the hand and he loves you. You trust him. Things are good between you because he's forgiven your sins and you've been made his child. You've been made his own. And as you walk down this road, there is a, a firm smile upon his face, a caring grip on your hand. His face looks kind and tender and warm towards you as if he's really enjoying this moment walking down the road with you. And as you continue walking, all of a sudden, coming towards you on the sidewalk, there appears a very scary looking man walking towards you. His hair is all wild and his eyes are glazed and piercing and he looks terribly angry and dangerous. And so seeing this man, you squeeze your father's hand a little more tightly. 
He feels it and responds with even a more firm grip. The man stops about 10 feet in front of you and your father, and he stares you in the face, scoffing at you, and he says, Hey, you little runt, you still hold your daddy's hand? Scoffing at you, and he glares at you. You feel terrified. And as you turn your face away from this terrible threat in this man, you look up to your father's face. And then this pastor who tells the story then asks, what would you want to look up at when you see your father's face in that moment? He says, I don't want to see the same face that I was just enjoying one minute ago. Because at this moment, I don't want to see mainly kindness or tenderness or warmth. I want to see strength. And I want to see indignation and confidence. And I want a new kind of grip that is so tight, it would be uncomfortable in any ordinary circumstance. But now says, with this grip, you won't slip even if you faint. I've got you in my hands no matter what. And as you look up, your father steps between you and this man coming forward. And he says, you'd better stand down. I'm this boy's father. I'm this girl's father and he shields you as he walks boldly by the man and leaves him behind. It's the picture of God that we tend to see, or maybe we try to see. In our view of God, it is right to see the tender, warm-hearted, grass-covered fields of his character. But at the same time, we also need to see another side of God, the rugged, steep, granite cliffs of God's character that are strong, rock-solid, immovable in the face of danger and the great questions that we have in life of whether God is strong enough, capable enough, whether he's in control of things and your life. We might question his power. We might question God's control of things. Maybe you're questioning God's control over your life this morning. And to be honest, uh, we might even doubt that his plans for things in this world and our lives will end up for good. Uh, but I believe this passage in Acts that Shainu read for us wants to show us this morning that the purposes of God, his power, his plans, his promises, that they are invincible, unconquerable, indomitable to any threat or chaos that might come into your life into my life. If I could just summarize this statement for you to remember, it would be like this. Here's the big idea of this passage in Acts today. God is sovereign over every circumstance and his plans are indestructible, so trust him. It's the simple big idea I want you to hear today. That God is sovereign over every circumstance, his plans are indestructible, so trust him. Let's see how this passage shows us that in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. It's on page 909 in the Black Bibles in front of you. And if you're new here to Seven Mile Road, uh, we're in the third week of a new sermon series in the book of Acts, a book that was written and penned by a man named Luke. And so as we get into this scene in Acts 1, let me give you some of the background of where we've been for the past couple of weeks. And even before that, what's led up to this passage today? So the disciples have been through sort of a roller coaster ride as the Jesus, whom they devoted over three and a half years of their life to, has, has gone and been captured. He's been killed. He's been buried. 
And along with all of their hope, everything's been sort of dashed for these disciples who have followed him. Until three days later, they were witnesses to the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. He showed up, not with a wispy, ghost-like kind of an existence, but with flesh and blood. He had a real body, and he appeared to thousands of people, continuing to preach the gospel and do many wonders. And he stayed on this earth for 40 days until, as we heard last week, he then ascended into heaven. That's, that's what we're coming into, into the book of Acts. So there's a lot of wonder. There's a lot of excitement and activity. But the disciples are now without Jesus physically. Jesus is no longer with them physically but are promised to be sent the Holy Spirit to come down. We'll hear more of that next week in Acts 2. So as the disciples, these apostles, are trying to make sense of what has just happened during this waiting period, right? They're in the passage we're in today. They're sort of in this waiting period between Jesus having gone up to heaven and the Holy Spirit being promised to come down to us. And so the question that we ask as they ponder this and are in this in-between is, so who's left after all of this has happened? After all of this has transpired, who is left? And Luke records for us in verses 12 to 15 that as they returned to Jerusalem, they went up to an upper room to pray together. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there and his brothers and likely sisters. In fact, Luke says that there were about 120 people in that upper room. It was a big room, 120 people in that upper room. And Luke does sort of a roll call of the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles that have walked with Jesus. And he says, okay, we've got Peter, John, James, and Andrew here. We've got Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, you're here, James and Simon, and Judas, who's also known as Thaddeus, you're here as well. Uh, so that's 11 out of 12 disciples. Uh, who's missing? There's one man missing, Judas Iscariot, the one who gave Jesus up unto death and betrayed him. Judas is not on the roll call. In all of the excitement in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in ascension, his ascension into heaven, in all of the anticipation of the sending down of the Holy Spirit that's yet to come, there was also, in the midst of all that's happened, there was also a deep wound in the soul of this community. There was a deep wound amid all of the excitement for what's happening, a deep wound in the very soul of this community. Because what happened? One of their own, one of their leaders betrayed their trust, betrayed and handed over God himself to be killed. And Acts does not let you forget that. Uh, in countries where deadly persecution happens in churches and across the church, could you imagine a deacon of a church handing over a pastor of that same church to government officials to be tortured and killed? Uh, could you imagine that level of betrayal? And further, could you ever imagine that church ever surviving something like that. It's an awful thing. Perhaps these 120 people wondered the same thing about their future, about that church, about the church. Will this thing survive this great betrayal? I think betrayals are gut-wrenching because there's something that you don't expect. They're committed by people who are sort of a part of you. They are with you. They are one with you. It's unexpected. It defies all loyalty. 
right? Maybe kids and adults. What's the one scene from The Lion King that can make us all cry like little babies? Right? When Scar abandons and betrays his own brother Mufasa and he falls to his death and little Simba is now without a father. You feel the betrayal in that, the, the, the backstabbing of that. And you sort of saw that coming, but you couldn't imagine that that's how it was going to end. Or you think of the movie 300 when Ephelades betrays his own people and hands them over to the Persians because of his own selfish greed. Right? That's, that's the kind of betrayal that's unexpected, that betrays loyalty and, and history. Or perhaps more closely or more personal, perhaps you have experienced this or know or have read or know that this exists in the world. The kind of betrayal that really hurts you and wounds you deeply. Perhaps the cheating spouse or the backstabbing friend. The closest people in our lives to whom we have given everything to. We've given our trust over to. And perhaps even particularly relevant to this passage in some of you. Uh, the feeling of the betrayal of the church. Some of us have been purveyors of betrayal. Some of us have been recipients of betrayal. Whether it's been in conversations with other leaders, Christians, and some of you over the years, betrayal felt within the trusted walls of the church can feel deeper than some of the other betrayals that we feel because this is one of the places where you expect loyalty and trust. You give your whole life into this, into this thing. Spirit, mind, body, soul, the whole thing is in. And so when you are betrayed here, you feel it a little more deeply. And to be honest, I carry some of my own wounds and baggage within the church. So the church is not short of broken promises. It's not short of slander or adultery or cover-ups or greed or scandal. It is not short of betrayal. So what do you do with the sin of betrayed trust? How do you ever get back to a place of trust again? When you think of the name Judas, what's some of the words that come to your mind when you think of Judas? He's almost synonymous with everything bad. Now, if you're a Christian or not, you know the name Judas is not something you want to be called. This last disciple that's mentioned here, he has a bad start because his name is already Judas. He's already got this name sort of tagging him. Judas is, is associated with being a traitor, a betrayer, a backstabber, a loser. It's a, it's a punk, a sellout, someone you do not want to be associated with. Nothing good at all. But back during Jesus' ministry, right, we see this on this side where we can now see all that Judas has done. But in, on that side of biblical history, Judas was just like one of the rest of the twelve. He was considered just like one of them. In fact, when Jesus in the Gospels predicts that he will be betrayed by one of the disciples, no one goes, Judas, yep, it's Judas, it's definitely going to be Judas. I saw this coming. I saw this betrayal coming. No, there was only confusion. There was only horror that one of them could possibly do that. There was no thought that Judas would betray. The gospel, according to John, what's even more surprising, actually says that Judas was the one who handled the money bag of this ministry team. He's the one who actually handled all the money and the accounts that was going through this. Who, who do you give that responsibility to? To someone you trust, someone who is loyal. 
So it's the surprise that this man has been the betrayer. But as Jesus spoke more about the life of those who follow Jesus, Judas became more and more disillusioned by the talk of suffering and of dying with Christ instead of sitting on the throne with power and with fortune. You start to see the ugliness of Judas's soul surface, who he really is, what he's really after begins to be apparent for us as we read the Gospels. There was no way There was no way that Judas was going to sign up for that and go to the grave with Jesus to a shameful death. Instead, he wanted to cash out while the iron was hot, and the religious and political leaders wanted Jesus to be killed. So there was a prime opportunity here. The religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. Judas wanted to cash in while the iron is hot. So what happens? The only thing they were missing was an inside man. Uh, Someone who is on the inside of Jesus' circle. Someone who could deliver Jesus to them. Judas would be their man. He was the obvious choice. There was an opportunity and he bit. Judas, the leader, the insider within Jesus' small circle, turned his privilege and his position into selfish gain. Judas was the kind of guy that you gave your backdoor key to. Uh, He was the kind of guy, if you looked on Facebook, would be in the pictures with you, hugging you and joking. He'd be the guy at the dinner table with you that you joked around with. He would not be the guy that you expected. But for 30 pieces of silver, this dear friend and confidant would hand Jesus over to be tortured and killed. Could you imagine that kind of betrayal happening in that circle? Right? Think of these other disciples, these other 11 disciples, as they've walked with him. How do they move on from that as they are sitting in this upper room? How will Peter now address this group of people after this deep, deep wound inflicted by Judas? Peter could have responded by retreating and being done with this whole thing. He could have said, listen, that was a good run. We had three and a half good years. You, this whole thing is jacked up because you're sinners, I'm a sinner, we're going to let one another down, so let's just call it quits while we're ahead. The Holy Spirit will come down and we'll all be good. Let's just retreat and be done with this. Peter could have done that. Peter could have also just ignored that this all happened, excused it, and just swept it under the rug as if nothing ever happened. Peter could have even just been confused or perplexed by this. How could this happen? How could the one that Jesus himself chose betray Jesus? He could have been perplexed by this. Uh, But how does Peter address these 120 people concerning Judas and the wound that he inflicted? I love how Pastor Matt Cruz up in Seven Mile Road, Boston put it. He puts it like this. Peter calls them to lean into the sovereignty of God, even over sin. Peter calls them to lean in to the sovereignty of God, even over sin. Because here's what Peter says in verses 15 to 20. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled 
which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then Luke sort of does an aside commentary, and he says, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. Peter is saying this, listen, we need not minimize the pain of this wound of Jesus' betrayal, the one that cuts deeply and perhaps will never even leave us. It was devastating, it was awful, but would you hear, my brothers and sisters, in this upper room, take heart for not one moment of that, not one detail of that was a surprise to God. No part of what happened with Judas came as a surprise to God. Why? Because if you'll note, what he says is that the scriptures had to be fulfilled, and what he quotes is a psalm from a thousand years ago, because centuries before, Judas ever decided that 30 pieces of silver would be the price on Jesus' head. A thousand years before, he ever decided that a garden would be the place where he would lead the officials to capture him before he ever thought that a kiss would be what would be the sign for them to retrieve him. A thousand years before, the Holy Spirit, through the pen of David, wrote in Psalm 69 that all that Judas did would come to pass. It was no surprise. It was no shock to God. Peter is saying that God knew about Judas's sinful betrayal before Judas even breathed his first breath. Peter is asking these 120 people and us this morning that when sin and betrayal and trust is lost, when circumstances and expectations of life don't pan out for you, when they don't turn out the way that you expect, how do we make sense of it and press on? The greatest theologian John Calvin asked the same question. Here what he says, how does Judas, who Jesus himself chose, to such an excellent function so filthily fall in the beginning of his course? And Calvin goes on to say, Peter removes the stone of stumbling for us when he says that it was foretold by the Scripture. The words of Scripture are able to appease all the fear of the sudden event of things. There's nothing that troubles us more than when we lean on our own understanding and bring to ourselves doubt which the Lord would be ready to cure if we would only hold fast to this one thing, that nothing is absurd which he has foreseen, which he has appointed, which he has foretold. Did you hear that? Nothing that happens in life which he has predestined and foretold and foreknew is absurd. Nothing comes as a surprise. Peter is saying that the most absurd, the most chaotic, the most wounding, the most disappointing, the most saddening events in your life might happen. Even such a thing as Judas handing God to death. And yet, 
There are no absurd things at all, for they have been foreseen, appointed, and foretold by God. Even betrayals are under the sovereign hand of God. Everything that happened after Judas' betrayal, would you hear me, was not plan B for God. The torture, the crucifixion of Jesus wasn't the alternate ending for this story. It wasn't as if everything sort of went haywire and God was trying to put the pieces back together and figure out how to make sense of this. But instead, the exact opposite is true. God works. Hear this. God works through sinful human actions to accomplish his eternal and redemptive purposes on earth. God works through sinful human actions to accomplish his eternal and his redemptive purposes on earth. Because he's done this before. You don't have to think long and hard to go back and realize what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. Right? Was it a surprise to God that the very first humans that were created and put on the earth would screw it up within a few minutes? Did that come as a sudden shock to God? Did God somehow cross the wires and mess it up right from the get-go? Did God just keep trying with Noah and with Abraham and with Joseph and Moses and David only to continue to be surprised that they did not have what it takes and and they didn't have what it takes to to measure up to the expectations? Was Jesus the last-ditch effort to save you, to save the world? And the Gospels would say no. All of biblical history would say no. God was actually working in and through sinful people and their actions to save the world through Jesus Christ once and for all time. So would you hear this? The Gospel in this life does not promise us a life that is without wounds and without deep cuts, without disappointments, That betrayals would never come to us or as if we would never endure suffering or pain and loss. But what the gospel does promise us is that our God is sovereign. That he is good. So much so that he allows sin and suffering in mysterious ways, perhaps that we will never know, to work out for our good in life. That is why we can say with the fullest confidence the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. And this life, if you are a Christian, you are not promised an insulated life, as if you are in a, in a bubble, free from all the, the daggers and the, and the darts that will be thrown at you, free from betrayal, But we are promised to be secure in the arms of a sovereign and good God who loves us. That we can take to the bank. That we can bet on. When mistrust, when confusion and a loss for words exist to explain what overcomes us, we look up to the face of God who holds our hands with steel in his spine, love in his eyes, no shrugging shoulders, no panicked face. But a smile that says, I've got it under control. I actually wrote the whole story a long, long time ago. As this passage closes in this last section, the place of Judas has to be replaced. Right? This 12th apostle who has fled and who has died, 
He has to be replaced. And it's as if God, through his word, is showing us, listen, Judas is gone. He's gone. He's killed himself. He's hung himself. But nothing, nothing will stop this from happening. Nothing will halt the plan of God, my plan, from continuing. Because Peter also mentions in Psalm 109, just a few verses before, that the appointment for someone else to take this office will actually happen. That's what he quotes a moment ago, that someone else will take this office. That was written a thousand years ago. God He's ushering in new Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel that you've heard, now the 12 apostles are taking that place as representatives of this new Israel, the church. Verse 21 says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So quickly, the requirement is that this person needs to have been a witness to the historical Jesus, not just hearsay, but they should have seen and and witnessed what has transpired through the life of Jesus. Verse 23 says, And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all, so show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go into his own place. And so what happens is that as they consider who this apostolic replacement could be, they boil it down to two men. They bring it down to two men, and then they pray that God would reveal to them who it is. So it's somewhat comedic, but what's their choice? What's their method of choosing between these two men? Essentially, their super spiritual method is just to roll some dice. That's essentially how they choose who this 12th apostle will be. Here's what it says in verse 26. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. You see, in those days, they would take a piece of stone or rock, write some initials or a name on that, put it in a bag, shake it up, and whatever stone fell out first, guess what? That's what God chose. That was, that was the appointment. It was clear that that was who God desired to be in that role. And so this is what the disciples have done. And the lot fell on Matthias. And so when you read that quickly, it'd be easy to think this was just by chance. This was just fate, as if God had nothing to do, it, do with it. But as you read verse 24... They pray that the Lord Jesus himself might show them through the casting of lots whom Jesus has chosen. Jesus is the one, when he was on earth, who handpicked the eleven. And Jesus now from heaven is the one who handpicked Matthias to be that twelfth disciple. Would you see, again, the activity of Jesus Christ on the earth, even from heaven? He is actively involved. And as we close, as we consider how this text winds up, what's to come next is exciting. The Holy Spirit will be brought near. But as we close this passage, I want you to just hear quickly three things to take away from the calling of Matthias and the consideration of who Judas was in light of our lives. Three things. One, I want you to hear that God has not halted anything in your life. 
God's plan for your life has not been halted because of something that has happened. Would you hear that? When you look at the chaos of your life, when you endure heartache and suffering, whether you've been sinned against or you have sinned someone, when you wake up and things are not the way that you dreamed them to be, you will be tempted to think, surely this cannot be anything of God's plan. This is not God's plan for my life. God's plan may have come, but it's gone. This is not. It's come, but it's been destroyed. I am not in God's plan. But friends, would you hear that Adam and Eve was God's plan? Would you hear that Judas was God's plan? Hear that the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, on the cross for you, was God's plan. Awful things, awful things done at the hands of sinful men. Not even the grave, dear friends, could thwart his plan, but it was a part of it for your redemption, for your salvation. So, so would you not think, would you not believe, would you not hope that even in your circumstances of life today that you find yourself in, God's plan has not been thwarted and that he is up to something good for your life, even if you cannot see it. Second, entrust yourself to others because you can trust Jesus. Entrust yourself to others because you can trust Jesus. Some of the application of that. It means that you can get married to another sinner and still trust Jesus and expect disappointment and hurt. It means that you can befriend people even when those relationships are difficult and when uh, the reciprocity is not what you feel or when they're not perfect and if they're messy. It means that you can have kids and foster kids and adopt children even though at some point they may go astray and not always fall in line or perhaps not even follow Jesus. It means that you can still trust Jesus because he's sovereign. You can give yourself to gospel community here and invest yourself and be vulnerable in the messiness of relationships. And listen, perhaps if you've been wounded and betrayed by the church, it means that you can even entrust yourself to a church and her leaders because of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. If you asked me here at Seven Mile Road, how do we call leaders here and how do we sustain leaders at Seven Mile Road? Uh, we could hand you a booklet and say, this is our deacon track, or this is our elder track, or this is how we try to maintain some semblance of holiness and godliness and not fall into sin. This is how much we feel the weight of ministry. We could tell you all of those things. Uh, but as one pastor put it, I don't know if there won't ever be a Judas on our team or that we would never endure a wound, but it's Okay. Our hope is not that there won't ever be a Judas, but that God is good, that he is sovereign, and that he is for us even over sin. Our hope is not rooted in or dependent upon people to not sin, but on the grace, goodness, and power for God to work all things together for our good. Our dependence is not on our ability to be able to live perfectly, though we strive to. Our trust, our hope, all that we bank our lives on is on this God who works all things together for the good of those who love him. 
The gospel, dear friends, can give you courage and it can give you freedom to have real relationships, imperfect and messy as they may be. Isn't it such good news that in that upper room, those 120 people did not let the wound of Judas or the messiness that perhaps existed in their that small early church to be splintered into 120 different pieces and then go out on their own? Isn't it such good news that they stuck together? They, did this, they decided to risk it and endure it and be together, staying unified in the unity that they had in Jesus for the sake of the church to be established, despite all the sin that exists in this world. Isn't it for our benefit that that has happened? And so take heart, be of courage, press into the relationships of this broken world. And lastly... Consider who it is that addresses these 120 people in that upper room. It was Peter, one of the disciples who followed Jesus. We know that Judas failed, right? We, we know that like the back of our hand. Judas is the traitor, the betrayer, the one who failed. But what about Peter? Judas betrayed Jesus, yes. But Peter outright denied Jesus when he was being tried in court on his way to the cross to be killed. There was no integrity in Peter. There was no godliness in Peter to be seen there. There was only sinful abandonment of the Son of God whom Peter walked with and ate with and whom he told he would never deny three times. That's the Peter that writes this. So then, what's the difference between Judas the failure and Peter the failure. Well, Judas walked away from God and his people, never returned. He hung himself, filled with the guilt of the sin that he committed. But what about Peter? He repented of his sins. And it's a beautiful story. Go back and read it this week if you have a chance. Jesus forgives Peter. And now the irony is that he is in this upper room with the mother of Jesus and guess what? He is now the leader of this church that's being established. That's what happened to Peter. Two failures in this discipleship group. And listen, one failed, the other failed as well. But what's the difference? The only difference is that Judas and Peter, is that one brought their sin to Jesus and repented. The other brought their sin to the grave and died. But they both failed. They both were not worthy. They both did not have a righteousness on their own. One trusted in Jesus. One died in his unrighteousness. So this is a heavy word, but it's a hopeful word for us this morning. Because you're not dead. You're hearing these words now. You can hear and respond. And so whatever your sins are that you've committed, this day unbeliever or believer, today's a great day because you can again allow the sovereign God who is even over your sin grant you mercy and grace for it and forgive you and show you great love today. So Seven Mile Road, would you hear again? God is sovereign over every circumstance and his plans are indestructible. So trust in him. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we are thankful that you don't count us out even though we are imperfect, even though we are betrayers and liars, we're swindlers.
We are the cheats. But in your grace, your, your wonderful grace towards us, we are the very people that you call back in, that you forgive, that you call us in to serve you as if we are free from all of those things, washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Help us to feel that today. Help us to also feel, O oh Lord, that you are in control of all things, that you have nothing out of control, including us and the circumstances and the details of our lives. The pains of our lives, the sufferings of our lives, the questions that we have in our mind, they are not questions to you. You've written the story. You've written our story. And we pray, O oh God, that you would grant us the grace of faith to be able to trust you and to believe in you even when we don't know it all, even when life seems bleak and uncertain. We need your spirit to do this, and so we ask that you would. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.